Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Why I Help podcast, the podcast that is focused on the majority of people who are doing good things and helping others. Unlike the mass media, we don't focus on just the bad guys. We want to know about the good guys because truthfully, there's way more good people out there than there are bad people. So today we have an interview with a lady named April Lott. April is the president and CEO at Directions for Living, a not-for-profit child welfare and behavioral health organization providing a comprehensive network of services promoting safe and stable families. Directions for Living is based in Clearwater, Florida, and has a staff of approximately 250 employees and over 100 volunteers. I want her to tell us more about Directions for Living, so let's talk to April Lott. April Lott, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and helping us spread the good news. I know you're doing good things, and I can't wait to hear about it. Good, yes. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So if you would, tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you grew up, what your upbringing was like, because you work in the, you work in a nonprofit and not everybody wants to go that direction. So tell us kind of how you arrived there. Yeah. Uh, so I was born and raised in Pinellas County, which is, you know, where I'm located today. I uh, was raised by my mother, who was in law enforcement and was uh, pretty uh, adamant about service to others. And when I was about 14 years old, we went to a garage sale that was being held at a local church that was near our home. And my mother bought me a book for 10 cents uh, that was titled, Sometimes God Has a Kid's Face. And I read that book and felt committed and drawn and convicted to service, in particular service to children who were being abused and or neglected and were kind of our forgotten children. Uh, and I really just felt like that that book was written specifically for me. Um, and that really is how I got started. I mean, certainly it's it's in my roots of, of my mother's, uh, you know, entire career to to service. Uh, she was the first victim advocate in the state of Florida. You know, she went on to do some pretty amazing things. And so that certainly contributed, no doubt, to to where I am. But but I firmly believe that the book uh, that I bought for 10 cents or that my mother bought for me for 10 cents at this yard sale uh, is really why I am who I am today. That's a great story. I, I love that. I mean, it's that's the inspiration right there. What a great story. Sometimes God has a kid's face. Yep. Sometimes God has a kid's face is the title of the book. I still have it to this day. It still sits on my on my bookshelf here in my office. And um, yeah, and, and there yeah. were a, a, a series of books that came after that, um, that uh, were, were equally inspirational to me. But really, that first one was the one that that called me uh, to a career of service. 
I love that. So how did you start? What, how, what did you start in terms of service? Where, how did you get going? Well, you know, at the time, uh, St. Pete College was St. Pete Junior College. And so I started at St. Pete College following my, um, my high school graduation. And uh, I really thought at the time that I wanted to be a teacher and that serving children through education was really the, the path for me. Uh, and interestingly enough, my guidance counselor at St. Pete Junior College at the time, you know, I, I have a very distinct memory of walking across the, the field with her and her saying, you know, that she had this opportunity for me uh, to get a double major and that, you know, I would need to do a, uh, a practicum or an internship. And uh, at the time it was with HRS and which I signed up to do. I said, okay. And so I signed up to, to do the internship uh, in, the, in the Department of Protective Investigations, investigating abuse and neglect of children. And after my first week, uh, I thought there is, this is not for me. Uh, it, this is entirely too difficult and entirely too awful. Uh, and so I went to meet with my advisor and you know, she you know, we walked across the field and, and she said something along the lines of, if not you, then who? Um, and it, it hit me, right, that, that this is not work that is attractive to anybody. But some of us uh, are chosen to, to do this work because it's important uh, and necessary for the overall health and, and safety and well-being of our community. And so uh, when she said, if not you, then who? I thought, she's right. Uh, and I, I have to say, I've never looked back. So I started as a protective investigator, investigating abuse and neglect under HRS. Uh, and then I went on to, uh, to do quite a bit in uh, investigating sexual abuse of children. I worked with sex offenders for a period of time. Uh, ultimately got my master's degree uh, and became licensed as a clinician and then really just kind of found myself always working my way back to uh, administrative type positions. Uh, and then about 15 years ago, uh, came to Directions for Living as the CEO. Wow. You know, I want to, I really want to say, you know, good for you. Um, I, I don't know if I could go into a field like that. I am all about helping people. That's why we do this podcast and why we do our other podcast. Um, but you could have walked away and I, I would have understood that. I, I thought that was, I actually thought that was the direction that your story was going to go in. And I would have been okay with that because that's not an easy thing to confront by any stretch of the imagination. And the fact that you, stuck with it. I mean, well done you. Yeah, thank you. I, and, and, you know, it's interesting because now I say uh, to people who are, you know, first beginning or first entering the field, you know, I, I quite frankly say I think everybody should, you know, who wants to be in social services uh, should work in protective investigations uh, at, at least for a period of time. I think that it, in addition to the painful, in addition to painful things that you no doubt that I no doubt saw and, and encountered. And, you know, I mean, I have stories for days that that are awful stories. But in addition, you also get to see the best in humanity uh, in that position, which I think is an awful, 
often overlooked aspect of it. Uh, but I actually witnessed and observed and learned uh, from, from some of the best uh, examples of humanity relative to um, families and, and caring for children and, and protective capacities and all of those things as well. So um, you make a very good point. I, I sorry to interrupt you, but you make a very, very good point, which I make at the beginning of this podcast. And that is that the majority of people are good and they're trying to help other people. You unfortunately had to focus a little bit on the ones who are not trying to help and are bad, doing bad things to people. But the majority are not like that. And the fact that you can keep that perspective while being involved in, what do you call it, protective investigation? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. While, you, while you're involved in that, I think that's huge. And I think that that, I'm evaluating for you, I apologize, but I think that that possibly might be why you would stick with the work that you do, because you Absolutely. know that the majority Absolutely. of people are not bad and they really they really just need help so well very well done you so did did you when you when you moved more into administrative is it did you go directly into directions for living or did you work with other organizations yeah so my career actually started in 1983 is when i started as a protective investigator so it's been you know, I, I don't even know the math at this point. It's 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 been 35, 36, 37 years. Uh, I've been with Directions for Living for the past 15. Okay. Uh, but prior to that, you know, I kind of weaved my way in and out of direct frontline kind of uh, service provision and administration. And then I would go back into frontline service and then back into administration. And I have to say that that journey for me was important because I am a clinician at heart and uh, I, I get a lot of inspiration from client care and from the actual work of service to individuals and families. Uh, and so, it, you know, being exclusively in an administrative position would not have uh, inspired me or kept me, you know, committed or motivated for as long as I've been, uh, really in the field. I, you know, I completely agree. I, it's like, it's like the CEO of a company making shoes who is willing to get down on the floor, the warehouse floor and help make the shoes. You cannot, I don't think you can be a good leader without that viewpoint and without, you know, stepping yeah. down to remind yourself who you're working with, who, who's important. And I, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah. How did, how did you get attracted to this organization? Did you, were you in on the ground floor or was it already operating? No, it was already operating. So, uh, you know, Directions for Living began in 1984. And as I said, I was born and raised here. So I was, I was, uh, you know, a, a very young uh, professional when Directions for Living uh, kind of began, and it was a very small organization, and I was only, you know, familiar with, at the time, it was called Directions for Mental Health, and, um, and so I didn't, in the beginning, see myself at Directions for Mental Health. Uh, I was in Child Protective Investigations. I worked locally uh, in Child Protective Investigations, and 
after I left that, I went into working with, uh, actually with probation and parole. I was a uh, probation and parole officer for uh, offenders, sex crimes against kids. Uh, and, and I did that because uh, as a child protective investigator, I was losing perspective on the people who were actually perpetrating the crimes and and knew there was more to the story, if you will. Um, and, and not that I was ever leaning towards kind of the abuse excuse, but but more that I just knew that there was more to the story. And if we were ever to get ahead of it uh, and or prevent it altogether, we needed to know more about uh, the offender themselves. And so I just kind of saw my career as, a, as stepping stones, uh, kind of building blocks, if you will, to ultimately get me where I am today. But I, I had left uh, Pinellas County. I was in uh, Orlando for uh, many, many years also in social services and then just had the opportunity to come back home because of my parents and some other things that were going on. And, uh, and so when we you know, moved back to Pinellas County, I really had options in terms of where I was gonna go work. And almost for the first time in my life, I had options. Uh, I didn't have to work and I didn't have to, I didn't have to accept and or, you know, accept a position that was not going to be fulfilling for me uh, and ultimately chose Directions for Living because uh, of its um, reputation, its, at that point, its longstanding history. Uh, there had really only been C two CEOs of the organization. It was a very stable organization doing really good things. And I just thought that it would fit for, for me in terms of where I was in my career. I, I think that's huge. And I'm very thankful that you did go into that position. And I also just want to say that um, while I, I completely understand you don't want to take the viewpoint like, oh, it's okay. He's abusing a child because he was abused. I get that. But the more understanding that we can get on why people do what they do. It doesn't excuse it. Exactly. But it's, but it's understanding and we have to have understanding in areas like that. So, okay, so directions for living. Lead us through, lead the listeners through what the focus is of directions for living and what are the services that you guys offer? Okay. so. Directions for Living, it started as Directions for Mental Health, and it really was missioned then, uh, back in the early 80s, mid-80s, it was really missioned around this idea that there were people in our community who had or were experiencing a mental health condition, living with a mental illness, uh, experiencing mental health crises, who were uninsured and did not have what, what people referred to back then as the indigent. I think that's a very pejorative uh, name. It's not one that I think we should be using in today's uh, day, but back then, uh, so so Directions for Mental Health at the time was really mission to provide access to uh, quality mental health services to people who, who, who otherwise may not be able to afford or have access to mental health services. Uh, and so we were born really to be community mental health. Uh, to be a community mental health center uh, for those people who otherwise couldn't access or afford access to those services. Interesting. And, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, in the past, 
pretty much if someone was exhibiting some sort of mental difficulty, they were just sent to a mental institution, a mental hospital, which truthfully, in my opinion, should only be used for the criminally insane, not the mother who is suffering from postpartum depression, do you know, or the child who is having tantrums. And so I think that uh, the services that you guys offer is, it's huge. It's, it, you know, it's what's needed for uh, a lot of different people. Um, One of the the questions that um, Summer, your friend Summer, thought Uh we should ask, which I think is a really good question, especially for now. I know we're coming out of COVID, but there's still some people that are struggling. And it was, what what are some of the ways that we can start practicing self-care in terms of mental health? You know, the, the, the standard answer to that is something around, you know, exercise, good nutrition, good sleep hygiene. Uh, all of those things are, are absolutely still true and in, in grounded in, in science, right? We, we should be getting exercise. We should be eating generally well, and, and we should be practicing very good sleep hygiene, getting adequate amounts of, of sleep. But the my my bigger answer i think to that really is around and and it's it was always true it is it is particularly true now that we've all kind of gone through a pandemic together uh, and that is around relationships what what we know is problematic from a from a mental health and a mental well-being um standpoint is loneliness is is what is at the the crux of hurting so many people. Uh, It really tends to be the common denominator in people who end their life by suicide. It is loneliness. And uh, and, and loneliness is an interesting concept, right? But we are relational (laughs) beings. Uh, We just just are. And... What is what is true is that there are, you know, thousands of people who have good jobs, you know, are, are not impoverished in any way, shape or form, but are still nonetheless very lonely. Uh, they don't have a good support system. They don't have people that they can be, you know, fully transparent and honest with. And they live this life uh, surrounded by people, but still incredibly lonely. Uh, And then, of course, there are the added dynamics for people who, in fact, don't have good jobs, uh, who don't have stable housing, uh, who don't have enough to eat. They have all of those same challenges and they're lonely. Uh, But the loneliness factor is one that I think we need to begin paying more attention to uh, about quality relationships and understanding the benefit of of relationships to to others i think that's huge i think that's incredible advice i i went a little bit out of sequence um so let's go back to your organization and just lay out for us just some of the services that you provide so that if someone listening and they are local um in the tampa st peter if they wanted to reach out to you what would be some of the reasons why they would do that yeah, so, uh, you know, kind of picking up where I left off, you know, we, we kind of transitioned over the last 35, 37 years 
uh, following the science. So while we started as a community mental health uh, for people who otherwise couldn't afford it, we've evolved. We still provide mental health services. So I have a team of psychiatrists. I have a team of, of therapists and clinicians. Uh, we also have a team of case managers. Uh, one of the first evidence-based research supported practices in the country around working with people with complex mental health conditions is really having somebody to help advocate and navigate systems, uh, which is commonly referred to as case management. So we have uh, a whole uh, division or department of case managers as well. Uh, and then over the years, we, we have appreciated the nexus between people who live homeless and or chronically homeless, uh, who also have a co-occurring mental health or substance use uh, disorder. And, and as we as we began to kind of branch out into these these nexus, you know, where there is a nexus, where there is an overlap between these other what I'm going to call social uh, health, public health type issues like homelessness, like child welfare and the abuse and neglect of children, like uh, the Department of Juvenile Justice and, and Criminal Justice. So we are also now in all of those spaces. So we provide services in the to, to it, children and families who are at risk of abuse and neglect, where there is domestic violence, undiagnosed, untreated mental illness, substance misuse. Uh, we also work in partnership with our law enforcement community as they are being called to respond to people experiencing a mental health crisis more and more frequently. Uh, and we do quite a bit in the homeless prevention and homeless services arena. So we uh, do a lot to rehouse people to make sure that they're connected to services, mental health services and other services. Uh, we help people get, get entitlement benefits like social security and social security disability insurance. So really, I think if, if somebody was really interested in, in directions for living, I would encourage them to go to our website. We really do have a whole host of, of services uh, that intersect with good quality mental health. Uh, is is really our focus. Awesome. I think that's huge. Is there um, maybe a story of someone who came to your organization that sticks out in your mind that you could just share with us? You know, that's, that's interesting. You know, we have so many um, of those stories where, you know, our clients will, you know, kind of write in and say, you know, you absolutely saved my life. Um, some of the stories that, I, you know, we started about, I'm going to guess, maybe six, seven, eight years ago, uh, my marketing team, Summer and her team, um, started a no shame campaign. And so, because what we knew then, and certainly what we still know today is that stigma is often the barrier to people connecting and getting the services that they need as early as they need them. Often we're waiting until people are in a crisis uh, as opposed to you know, getting services early. Mm -hmm. uh, and it really is because of stigma. So we started a, a no shame campaign. And I, I have to say some of my stories would, would really come out of the no shame campaign where individuals who we have treated for a severe persistent mental illness for, for years, um, you know, volunteered, were nominated by their, by their staff, by their service providers, 
volunteered, came in, worked with our marketing team, not even clinicians, worked with our marketing team to kind of learn how to tell their story and uh, and then went through a, a makeover. In other words, they, they, they literally got a physical makeover and then had the ability, the opportunity to, with a professional videographer, uh, to, to tell their story. Wow. Uh, many of these stories are still contained on our website. So if anybody's interested in, in listening to one of these stories, uh, they're available to you. But essentially, one, one woman in particular who is diagnosed with a severe and persistent mental illness uh, struggled a, a lot, even with uh, communication, self-esteem, really didn't have any friends, uh, was an adult, uh, doing her best to just kind of live her life, uh, but it was a struggle. She got nominated for uh, the No Shame campaign. Uh, she went through that process, and to tell you that she became a different individual, who of course was always within her, uh, it would be an understatement. She literally blossomed uh, to be somebody who routinely went around with this, with the no shamers uh, to high schools and to other groups and presented their stories wow. and stood before audiences of a thousand and said, uh, I am diagnosed with schizophrenia uh, and I have no shame uh, and told her story. And wow. uh, it, 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 to see it was, it's still to this day, as I tell you, I get goosebumps and um, so do I. <laughs> emotional as I watched people in that audience kind of stand to their feet um, and, and surround her like she was a rock star to say, hashtag me too. Um, you know, I too have lived with these, these things and uh, you've inspired me to tell my story. And, wow. um, you know, and so the No Shame campaign, and, and I have to tell you, we have a group of five or six every year who are selected to go through the process. And for that entire year, they kind of become the speakers bureau uh, that we send out to the community to speak on behalf of and talk about mental health and and, you know, and every single time I am astounded and it, it almost takes my breath away around my marketing team therapeutically. <laughs> uh, what, what, what is astounding, you probably don't find it astounding because I think you're doing the same thing through this podcast. Uh, and Steve said in the beginning, right, that you started as marketing people. Uh, but what is interesting is what you know, kind of what having an advocate and a marketing team uh, can do to help to help people. Um, and and the No Shame campaign has has literally been single handedly uh, one of the most phenomenal things uh, that we do continue to do as an organization. Wow, that's that that's awesome. And yeah, we do have a little bit of a parallel because um, on our original podcast, which is all about addiction, when we have someone on our podcast who's in recovery and we just let them tell their story, it just, it's huge. It, we watch the person, you know, really come to life and get even more inspired to help others than before they were, they were interviewed because 
you know, telling your story and, and reaching out to help others is absolutely huge. Um, the website is directionsforliving.org for anybody that's listening. Um, April, if you just had one message to leave people with, what would that be? You know, I think it would be that, that we all have mental health. <laughs> we all have, if you have a brain, right, then you have an obligation to tend to your mental health. And it is not an us and them dynamic. It is all of us. And, you know, my, my message would be that, you know, we all need to care, not just for ourselves, but for others. Uh, and in order to create the compassionate society, I think that we all want to live in, um, that it really is about uh, caring for one's mental health and caring for others um, so that we you know, that we're all the best selves that we can, we're all our best selves. Um, you know, I think, you know, and, and if someone goes to our website, they would be able to see this. I, I didn't get to speak about, but one of the things that I, I also think is so important is just the relationship between trauma and, and, and exposure to trauma and early childhood and kind of health outcomes in general in adulthood. Uh, and that, again, for people who are adults who are struggling with any number of things, uh, including COPD or asthma or a physical health condition, yep. many of those people, if not all of those people, had an exposure to, to childhood trauma, to an early childhood trauma. And the more we become sympathetic and empathetic uh, to our peers who are doing the very best they can, uh, I think the more likely we are to create this society and the environment that we all deserve to live in. Thank you. Thank you, April. Thank you for talking to us today. Amazing story. Amazing the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great interview. Great advice. Um, when April, when I asked April about, you know, some advice for how we can take care of our mental health, um, I kind of sort of knew what direction she was going in, but it's so very true. Yes, we need to eat healthy. We need to get sleep. We need to do exercise, but we need to have relationships. Um, you know, there's that famous saying, and I apologize. I don't remember who said it. No man is an island. And that is the truth. So if you are suffering in any way, please reach out. There are a lot of good people out there who are willing to talk to you and willing to help you and refer you to organizations like Directions for Living if that's what you need. So we'll be back again next week. There's a lot more good people out there doing a lot more good things and we're gonna talk to them and tell you about them. Mm -hmm.